you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn to Genesis chapter 33. From Saul Bellow's collection of traditional Jewish tales comes this story. In a small Jewish town in Russia, there is a rabbi who disappears each Friday morning for several hours. His devoted disciples boast that during those hours, their rabbi goes up to heaven and talks to God. A stranger moves into town, and he's skeptical about all this, so he decides to check things out. He hides and watches. The rabbi gets up in the morning, says his prayers, and then dresses in peasant clothes. He grabs an axe, goes out off into the woods, and cuts some firewood, which he then hands, uh, hauls to a shack on the outskirts of the village. There an old woman and her sick son live. He leaves them the wood, enough for a week, and then sneaks back home. <clears throat> Having observed the rabbi's actions, the newcomer stays on in the village and becomes his disciple. And whenever he hears one of the villagers say, On Friday morning our rabbi ascends all the way to heaven, the newcomer quietly adds, If not higher. He's loving God through loving others, isn't he? And we're going to see that today in this passage of Scripture, which is the greatest commandment. Um, so we'll talk about that from Matthew in just a moment. But as you think about loving God, you know, um, I do it, but I don't do it perfectly, right? I love God, but I don't do it perfectly. There's times where I fail Him. I enjoy time with Him in the morning and throughout the day. I enjoy studying His Word and, and seeking His wisdom and preparing messages and... and uh, and doing those kind of things, loving others. I don't do this perfectly either, but I try. Judy and I have opened our home to, over the years to, for meals with various individuals. We've opened our home to those who needed a place to stay. We've taken meals to various individuals. We've visited with people, and we've prayed with and for others. As we think about those two concepts today of loving God and loving others, all of us have probably expressed our love for God in various ways. And so I want you to take a moment just this morning to reflect on the ways that we have loved God. How have you done that? And then all of us have probably expressed our love for others in various ways also. So take a moment to reflect on the ways that we have loved others. Jesus gave us the greatest commandment when he responded to one of the Pharisees. He said this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. That's Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40. Through the continued interaction between Esau and Jacob, we will see Esau's love for his brother, we will see Jacob loving God when he builds and names an altar after or at Shechem. The greatest command was given for all followers of Jesus Christ. So through this narrative today, we will be challenged with the big idea that our faith is expressed when we love God and others. So let's pray. Let's commit it to the Lord in prayer today. Lord, we just come to you today, and we thank you for this command that Jesus gave to us and how we will see it reflected in the lives of Esau and Jacob. We just ask, Lord God, that as we um, allow this big idea to sink into our hearts and minds this morning, uh, 
that, Lord, it would just transform us as we enter into this new year. I pray that we would express our faith by loving you and loving others. I pray that we would come up with creative ways to do that, perhaps even today. And so, God, would you move by your Holy Spirit in the hearts and minds of your people today. I pray that they would hear your voice and not mine, and that you would be glorified through the message that you have prepared. And so, Lord, speak now through your servant and through your Holy Spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have two points today, loving others and loving God. And so we need to look at verses 12 to 16 in Genesis chapter 33. And this is what God's word says. Then Esau said, let us be on our way. I'll accompany you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are tender and that I must care for the hues and, and cows that are nursing their young. If they are driven hard just one day, all the animals will die. So let my Lord go on ahead of his servant while I move along slowly at the pace of the droves before me and that of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Esau said, uh, Then let me leave some of my men with you. But why do that, Jacob asked. Just let me find favor in the eyes of my Lord. So that day Esau started on his way back to Seir. <clears throat> so what we see here is hospitality, right? Jacob has made his way all the way back from Haran. <clears throat> After 20 years of being away, he meets Esau. He's grateful that the, the meeting went well, and he found favor in the eyes of Esau. He's seeking that again today. But we see this hospitality that's extended as they're getting ready to, to depart and travel uh, deeper into Canaan. And so Esau offers to travel together. He says, let's just go together. Hamilton points out that I will accompany you is literally I will go in front of you. And so Esau is showing love and concern for his brother and his family by offering to go in front of them to probably provide protection. So he's like, why don't you come with me? We'll just we'll be in front of you. We'll, we'll kind of pave the way for you as we go back down to Seir, which is very far south of where they're at currently. But we see Jacob's response. He says, listen, we're going to be moving at a different pace than you. Esau and his 400 men were warriors. They were soldiers, and their pace would be much faster than that of a shepherd. And so that's what we see here in Jacob's response. Jacob explains that the young children in his family are tender and will not be able to keep the pace of a warrior. He said, it'll wear them out. They, they'll just play out really, really quickly. And then he also explains that he, has, uh, that he has hues and cows that have nursing young. So the nursing young would not be able to keep a, a steady, fast pace. They would need to stop in order to, to nurse. The, the mama animals would need to, time to graze and to drink to rehydrate so that they would be able to produce the milk needed for their young. And so if Jacob says, if I even just drive them hard for one day, they're all going to die. They're not going to be able to keep that pace. Gangle and Bramer say, at first glance, we might think the reference to the animals and children offered a convenient excuse, but most likely it represented the reality of the different lifestyles these men and their descendants had adopted. One was a warrior clan. You know, They were out doing battle. It was Esau and his clan. And you have Jacob as a shepherd. So they had uh, followed different uh, paces of life, different lifestyles. 
Now, some scholars have been hard on Jacob, saying that the excuse he gives for refusing Esau's offer shows that Jacob is still Jacob and not Israel. He's still a deceiver instead of, you know, one that's an overcomer. But I believe he was being a good shepherd of his flock and family. See, it's really easy for us to be hard on Jacob when we don't really know his heart and his mind. This was not some lame excuse, but a genuine concern for Jacob as he thought about his family and his flocks and herds. And I believe that Jacob knew that God was with him and would protect him. He didn't need protection. God had protected them all along these 20 years and in this travel. And Kyle and Dillich really bring that out. He said he needed no military guard, for he knew that he was defended by the hosts of God. And the, re- and the reason given was a very good one. My Lord knoweth that the children are tender and the flocks and herds that are milking are upon me. Because they are giving uh, milk, they are an object of a special anxiety to me. And if one should overdrive them a single day, all the sheep would die. And so Jacob just encourages his brother Esau. He says, just go on ahead. Uh, you don't need to wait for me. We'll just, I'll just go at the pace of the droves that are in front of me. <clears throat> we'll just make our way. And Jacob continues to address Esau as his Lord and refers to him as his servant. He says, I'm your servant. So Jacob, again, will just move along at the pace of his family and flocks. Kyle and Dillich go on and say, Till I come to my Lord and Seir. These words are not to be understood as meaning that he intended to go direct to Seir. Consequently, they were not a willful deception for the purpose of getting rid of Esau. Jacob's destination was Canaan, and in Canaan, probably Hebron, where his father Isaac still lived. From thence, he may have thought of paying a visit to Esau and Seir. So he never had an initial intention of going there. He was going to go to where God was calling him to go, and then eventually he would go visit his brother when he had time. Esau obviously accepts Jacob's explanation, but his offer of hospitality didn't end there. Esau says, well, why don't I just leave you some of my men? They'll be able to kind of help you with everything and, um, and just guide you to where you need to go. And perhaps it was to help with the flocks. Maybe it was to guide them to say here. It's not stated uh, what the expectation was, why these men were being left. But Jacob inquires about why Esau would do that. He says, why would I, why would I need that? He says, let me just find favor in your eyes again. It, this was his polite way of declining Esau's second offer without offending him. How many of us have been in a situation where we've had to politely decline some kind of hospitality that's been offered to us? But we, we want to do it in such a way as not to offend the person who's extended hospitality to us. So we find a way to graciously decline. The text does not con, uh, t- continue with Esau insisting that Jacob accept the offer of men so we can assume that Jacob has found favor in Esau's eyes. He doesn't continue to insist like Jacob had done with him with all of the um, gift of herds and flocks that he had sent ahead. You know, Jacob or Esau was like, I don't need these. I have plenty. And, and he, or Jacob just kept saying, oh, but I insist. I insist. And he goes, okay, I'll take them. But we don't see Jacob doing, or Esau doing that here with Jacob. He's not insisting. He's like, no, I insist that these men stay with you. And because of that, we realize that Jacob has found favor in Esau's eyes. So he doesn't continue to push uh, for that taking place. <clears throat> so Esau extended hospitality to Jacob twice. How does that apply to us? I, it leads us to our first principle today, that God is pleased when we extend hospitality. 
to others. He's pleased when we do that as his followers, as his children. Now, we're not told in Scripture that Esau ever began to follow the God of his father Isaac and his grandfather Abraham. And people who are not followers of Jesus Christ can certainly extend hospitality. I'm not saying that today. I'm not saying that oh, only if you're a follower of Christ can you truly extend hospitality. We realize that other people that don't follow Christ do that. They offer meals. They offer help with projects. But as followers of Jesus Christ, our motivation to extend hospitality is different than those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. God is pleased when we extend that hospitality to others, and it goes back to our big idea that our faith is expressed when we love God and love others. Hospitality is one way that we can show others that we love them. When was the last time you received hospitality from someone else? Take a moment to think about that. How did it make you feel? Important? Wanted? It makes you feel good, doesn't it? When was the last time you extended hospitality to someone else? To whom can you extend hospitality today? Maybe you can think about that. To whom can you extend hospitality this week? What are some creative ways you can extend hospitality to others? There's all kinds of creative ways. Offering a meal, offering a time of fellowship, just to come over and hang out, offering help with a project, maybe babysitting some children, offering a ride to church or to an appointment, offering a smile and or a kind word, serving them in any way they may need. All we have to do is ask, right? What's going on in your life? How you doing? Is there any way I can help you? Do you want to come over for a meal? That could even happen today, right? You want to go out to a, on a, to a meal together? And so our first next step today is simply this, to show my love for someone by extending hospitality to him or her this week. So I want you to be thinking about that. I want to encourage you to figure out how can I do that? How can I extend hospitality? So Esau started for home that same day, but Jacob went to Sukkoth. And so that's our second point, loving God. We're going to see how he loves God in uh, erecting this altar that he puts up there. Let's look at verses 17 to 20. Jacob, however, went to Sukkoth, where he built a, a place for himself and made shelters for his livestock. That is why the place is called Sukkoth. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Eloi Israel. So we don't know if Jacob eventually went to Seir to see Esau and his family. We're not told that in this passage of Scripture, in this whole narrative. We do know that instead of going to Seir, he went to Sukkoth. Sukkoth was just west of Penuel on the Jordan River and north of the Shabak River. And so you'll see this, uh, you see there the yellow circle that went around uh, where Sukkoth is. And then Penuel is just to the east of that. And you see the, the Shabak River and everything. And in just a moment we'll be talking about Shechem as well. And so it's mentioned uh, several times in the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 8, verses 5, 6, 8, and 14. So this particular city uh, or town that, uh, that Jacob names. It's, it's probable that he stopped there to allow his children and flocks to rest so that they would not get worn out. Jacob actually named the place where he stopped. He built shelters there, which is why he named it Sukkoth, because it, Sukkoth means shelters or booths. And the word sukkah describes a, a covered booth or shelter that served temporary purposes. 
The word is best known for naming the structures built during Israel's wilderness sojourn, whose provision they celebrated in the annual Feast of Tabernacles or Booths. And so during that feast time, if you remember in Jerusalem, the, um, the Israelites would not live in their houses, but they would build these temporary booths outside their house. Maybe it was in their courtyard, maybe it was in, in the common, uh, some common area, and they would stay in that booth during the, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And it was to re- recall what they had gone through in the wilderness. And here, this is uh, kind of that same idea, that these were just temporary um, shelters that he had set up, because he wasn't going to be staying there long term. So there are no time stamps to let us know how long Jacob stayed in Sukkoth. But we do know is that after Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at Shalem. That comes from a footnote in my Bible, uh, a city of Shechem. And so he pitched his tents in sight of Shechem. And Jacob had finally reached the promised land. He's crossed the Jordan River. Now you see the, the yellow circle around Shechem. He's in the promised land. Um, finally, he's returned after 20 years of being away. And what does he do when he gets there into the promised land? He purchases ground where he had pitched his tents for 100 pieces of silver. Now, the New American Standard Bible translates it as 100 pieces of money. And the reason I think that's a better translation is um, because the Hebrew word represents a unit of unknown value. We don't really know what it was. It wasn't a denarius. It wasn't any of those kind of things that we see in the New Testament. It wasn't all these other pieces of uh, money that that are... um, identified in scripture this is an unknown value so we don't even really know how much uh, Jacob paid for this piece of ground that he pitched his tents on the ground was owned by the the sons of Homor the father of Shechem and Kyle and Dillich say this piece of field which fell to the pl- to the lot of the sons of Joseph and where Joseph bones were buried we see that in Joshua 24:32 was according to tradition the plain which stretches out at the southeastern opening of the valley of Shechem, where Jacob's well is still pointed out, as we see in John chapter 4, verse 6. Also, Joseph's grave, two or three hundred paces to the north. So this is the plot of ground that Joseph gets as an inheritance. And, of course, that's where he wants his bones buried when he is brought back from Egypt. So what did he do after he bought this plot? He's already, his tents are already pitched there. He buys the ground, and then he sets up an altar. And there's some comparisons between Abraham and and Jacob's arrival in Canaan from Haran. Shechem was the first place where Abraham and Jacob both resided in Canaan. So, like, that's pretty cool. They both pitched their tents there. They both set up an altar there. And while Abraham did not name his altar, Jacob did. He called the altar El Elhoi Israel. And it can mean one of two things. It can mean God, the God of Israel, or it can also mean mighty is the God of Israel. And so it's um, interesting that Jacob is fulfilling his vow to the Lord that we saw in Genesis chapter 28, verse 21. He had returned safely to his father's house, so the Lord would be his God. That was his commitment. That was his covenant. And it's significant that Jacob uses his new name in naming the altar. This is the God of Israel, using that new name that the Lord had given to him. And so what we see from this is that the Lord was worthy to be Jacob's God. God had been with him for 20 years in Haran. God had protected him for 20 years. God provided food and clothing for Jacob for over the 20 years that he was away. 
God had brought him safely home to Canaan. God had provided a family for him. God had provided a livelihood as a shepherd. And God had provided flocks and herds. He was worthy to be Jacob's God. And that leads us to our second principle today, that the Lord is worthy to be our God. Take a moment to reflect on everything that God has done for you. Sometimes that's hard, right, when we've gone through a difficult period. But it's good to reflect on the things that God has done for us. How has he been with you over this past year? How has he protected you? How has he provided for you with food, with clothing, with shelter, with family, with friends, livelihood, education? And what has he brought you safely through? So do you think the Lord is worthy to be your God today? I would say, yeah. He's worthy to be our God. And so maybe that second next step is for you today, is for you today and that's to worship the Lord as my God and thank him for all that he's done for me. What a great way to start our new year, isn't it? To be grateful for all that God has done for us. It kind of sets our hearts and minds in the right place as we begin this, this new year. And you see, our faith is expressed when we love God and others. The other great thing is that if you've never believed in Jesus as your Savior, I want you to know that He is worthy to be your Savior. He's worthy to be your Savior. We're all born with this desire to be in charge of our lives and to have our own way. We don't want anyone else to be in charge of us. And that's called the sin nature. It's a rebellion against God. Instead of relying and being dependent on Him, we want to be independent from Him. And that's called sin, and we're all born with that desire. It's what Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no one. Another passage of the Scripture said that there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who, who desires to be in a relationship with Him. That's our sinful nature. We're born that way. And this rebellion against God earns a separation from Him for all of eternity. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages, what we earn or deserve for our sin is death. Not a physical death, because we're all sinners, so we would all be dead if that were the case. But it's a spiritual death. It's a separation from God for all of eternity if we have that darkness of sin in our lives when we die and meet God in eternity. But here's the good part. The second part of that verse, Romans 6.23, says, But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that wonderful? Yes, yeah, so what we earn or deserve for our sin is to be separated from God, but he says, that's not my plan or desire for you. He says, but the gift of my gift to you is salvation through Jesus Christ, who died on a cross. His desire is that you would be in a personal relationship with him. He loves you with an everlasting love, and he draws you to himself with loving kindness. That's what the prophet Jeremiah says in chapter 31, verse 3. He says, I have loved you with a everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn you. God is, is calling to you today. He's saying, would you please be in a relationship with me? Why don't you start your new year with being in a relationship with me? And we see that Paul writes again to the Romans in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that he demonstrated his love for us by sending his one and only perfect son, Jesus, to die on a cross for us. And as Paul writes to the Corinthian believers, he says, But God made him who had no sin to be sin for you, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, we can't be in a right relationship with God on our own. We can't do it. 
And so God said, I'm going to send my perfect son who's holy, who's never sinned, and he's going to be the sacrifice, the once-for-all sacrifice for your sins so that you can be in a right relationship with me. I'm going to look at your sin through the lens of Jesus' blood. I'm going to say you're now in a right relationship with me. And so Jesus' perfect sacrifice on the cross for your sins is why he is worthy to be your Savior. And then John tells us in chapter 3, verse 16, this, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Eternal life is the same uh, term I've used when I've said saved. That's the same thing. Eternal life is the kind of life we need here on earth in order to obey God because we can't do it in our own strength. We need his eternal life. His eternal life is the kind of life we need to be able to spend eternity with him in heaven someday. Our name gets written in that Lamb's book of life. And so maybe you're ready to take that third step today to start your new year in in an incredible way, and that's to believe in Jesus as my Savior from sin and receive God's gift of eternal life. If you make that decision, make sure to mark that on your communication card. Put your information on the front. I want to give you a call this week and talk to you about that. That's an incredible decision. As we just review this morning, let me ask you a couple of questions. To whom do you need to show hospitality to this week? Are you ready to worship the Lord because he's worthy to be your God? And are you ready to believe in Jesus as your Savior and receive eternal life? We have the opportunity as a body of believers to show hospitality to those in our community. We've done that. We do that through in-gathering at Thanksgiving time, but we don't have to just do it just at Thanksgiving time. We can do it (coughs) year-round. As there's a need in our community, uh, we're made aware of that a lot of times, and we have benevolence that we uh, provide. But we don't have to even wait for the benevolence committee to make those kind of decisions. If you know of a need in the community, then just reach out. And we can worship the Lord for providing and protecting us as as a body of believers. He's done all those things for us. As we close this morning in his book, Sources of Strength, President Jimmy Carter shared this lesson. After a personal witnessing experience with Eloy Cruz, an admirable Cuban pastor who had surprising rapport with very poor immigrants from Puerto Rico, I asked him for the secret of his success. He was modest and embarrassed, but he finally said, Senior Jimmy, we only need to have two loves in our lives for God, and for the person who happens to be in front of us at any time. That simple yet profound theology has been a great help to me in understanding the scriptures. In essence, the whole Bible is an explanation of those two loves. That's what Jimmy Carter says. Isn't it, though? All of scripture is an explanation of loving God and loving others. And so I encourage you today, how can you do that? How can you show hospitality to someone this week? And how can you show God your love for him, your gratitude for all that he's done for you? And so as you just dwell on that, as I pray, the worship team's going to come and lead us in a closing song this morning. So, Lord, we just come to you. Thank you for your word. What an incredible message to us today that you've given us. Through the example of Esau and Jacob, how Esau just extended hospitality to his brother, <clears throat> and then how, how Jacob just 
built that altar and named it the God of Israel. Lord, you were worthy to be his God and you were worthy to be our God. And we just worship you for that today. And Lord, we just ask that you would do your work in our hearts and minds. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.